Welcome to Recalculating Adventist Life Now. I'm your host, Skip Bell. Our guest today is Dr. David Sedlicek. Welcome, David. Thank you so much, Skip. David is professor of family ministry and discipleship and director of the MA in Youth and Young Adult Ministry at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary, Andrews University. He is helping us with a sensitive topic today relating to people who are part of a sexual minority group. Dr. Sedlicek has participated in a major multidiscipline study of people who identify with a sexual minority. The learnings from that research are very helpful to an educational community, a faith community, to families, to all of us as we become more aware of and form helpful responses to people in sexual minority groups. The information helps acquaint us with the life journey of those who find themselves part of a sexual minority. It helps us understand the impact of revealing their identity to parents, family, and others, and helps us in discussions and relating to others regarding the implications on how we can move forward as we make our places of being safer places for people who are in a sexual minority. David, first, just please start by helping define the basic terminology for us. Okay, thank you, Skip. Um, I uh, also am co-facilitator of a care group on Andrews campus called Haven. And we had this very discussion recently in one of our uh, group sessions about the various terminology. And, and I want to begin by saying that it's very much fluid. It's evolving. There are new terms being developed all the time. And it's hard for us to keep up with all of it. But, but some of the basic terminology, our, our sexuality is a very uh, broad term. Um, it encompasses our, um, our gender um, identity. It encompasses uh, so many things about us as human beings, uh, our biological sex, whether we're male or female, um, our sexual orientation, our sexual practices. And one of the really beautiful things about this term of sexuality is, is that it's so intimately uh, connected to our spirituality. You know, we tend to, to compartmentalize ourselves as human beings, but when you take a look at the unity of the human person, our sexuality and our spirituality are so closely interconnected with one another. Um, and so it, it is so important that we understand um, this, this part of us, that um, we are sexual and spiritual beings the way God created us to be. Our sexual orientation is basically where is our primary attraction. So as heterosexual people, we are naturally inclined to be attracted to people of the opposite sex. But someone who is someone who is LGBT, particularly if they're if they're gay, they're attracted, they tend to be attracted to to males, to people of the same sex. And, and so that's our orientation. Our gender identity is more like are we are we um, um, do we identify as as 
gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender? What is, how do we identify ourselves as, as sexual beings? Now, gay, gay is a term that these days is more of a general term. It used to be more, you know, men attracted to men were called gay. But today, gay is a general term for anyone who is LGBT. Also, the term queer tends to be used in a very similar way this day, although it used to be a, a pejorative term where you would call someone queer or you would call someone gay. But today, those uh, terms have been reclaimed by the LGBT community, um, and so they're not used pejoratively anymore. Lesbian is someone, is a, is a, a woman who uh, is attracted to another woman. Bisexual are people who are attracted to both men and women. It could be either or. A transgender person is a person who is biologically, let's say, a male, but they, they feel their whole experience of themselves might be as a female or vice versa. Biologically, they may be a female, but they experience themselves as a male. And so we, we call that M to F, male to female, or F to M, female to male, transgender. Um, gender, uh, our, our gender expression is how we express ourselves. Um, do we express ourselves as male or do we express ourselves as female or some other variation of that? And, and coming out is a process and it's not just an event, but it's really a process that takes a lot of time, many times for um, LGBT persons. And it begins with a person um, beginning to experience themselves as different, maybe from, from others around them as children. I'm different, somehow I'm different. And often then we submerge that difference you know, because we, we get shamed for being different and different and, you know, people are called names that, that are negative names. And so we, we tend to submerge that difference. But then later on, usually during adolescence, that, that difference comes to our forefront. And we find ourselves being attracted, for example, to people of the same sex as we are. And it's hard to ignore that. We can't submerge it so much, so easily anymore. And then ultimately, we, we take a risk and come out or tell someone of our um, LGBTQ um, identity. And, and that is the beginning of that process of coming out. So, so uh, David, coming out as a term... Uh, doesn't mean all of a sudden we choose to be or determine we are. It's the acknowledgement public uh, in, in a public context of who we are. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. Whether it's to a, a friend and, and um, often it's easier to come out to a, a friend, um, maybe some of, of the same age group because, because um, it, it's safer. But the first thing that happens is a person has to come out to themselves. Mm -hmm. And often, often gay people, especially who were raised in Christian, in a Christian environment, 
have a very difficult time coming out even to themselves because there's so much guilt and shame connected to that um, as a Christian and and what we hear you know from our from our pulpits or from our, our parents or society is that there's something wrong with being gay and therefore it's hard to acknowledge even to ourselves that we are and then we might take a risk ultimately of coming out to someone in our family at some point and often that occurs um, around the age of, of 16 to 19 is when many people begin taking a risk to come out to, to, to family members, if they come out to them at all. Uh, Dr. Sedlicek, your um, vocational career has brought you with your doctoral work and your vocation in counseling and understanding human behaviors. You have served the church in issues of youth, young adult, and family. So your uh, journey with the topic of our conversation today is experiential, not simply research, but you have been part of a team um, constructed and assigned by our particular faith community. Now, so, uh, many and, and maybe most of the folk joining in this conversation, participating, listening today, share a conservative uh, faith tradition. Uh, but we have many who don't experience a faith tradition of any kind who are likely listening to this conversation. I think a significant thing is that our faith body, being conservative and having certain religious, uh, I, I don't want to uh, prejudice the conversation by using the word bias, <laughs> But, but there, there tends in society to be a certain position. But our body, our faith body has said, we need to take an objective, reasonable look and ask, what is, what is right in terms of people of faith and how we relate to people in these communities of which we are talking. So they commissioned a research project, and you were part of that team. I'd like you to get, I think it was called the impact of responses of parents and family to LGBT plus youth coming out. Uh, but I might have that a bit wrong. Just give us an overview of the team, the method, the population, the data, collection and some of the important research questions and, and then we'll go into some of the findings but give us an overview of that research all right um the, the one thing i want to begin by saying is that um our um our church our church this was the very first denomination that we could find of any christian denomination that studied LGBT millennials of its own denomination. Hmm. And, and so it was really a groundbreaking uh, research study. And there were two of us, uh, Dr. Kurt Vanderwall and myself, who were the co-principal investigators of this study, who, who wanted to find out more about 
LGBT millennials who were Seventh-day Adventist. And it, it, the context of this is that we were a part of a, uh, a team on the campus of Andrews University who were studying um, youth who um, were homeless. And we found that about 40% of homeless youth were um, LGBT because they had been kicked out of their homes. And so we, we thought, oh, that's a tragedy. We want to do something to find out, well, what's happening in our own church? And so we began uh, a, th this study as, as uh, um, a mixed method study where we studied both quantitative um, data. In other words, we developed a survey of LGBT um, youth who were Seventh-day Adventist. And then we did, uh, we did interviews. We did uh, qualitative interviews with a number of them as well to try to, to, to really hear their voices, uh, not just uh, the, the data. So what we did is we, we did a survey in, uh, of LGBT youth that were on college campuses. So we sent this survey out to college campuses. Um, and the, the, the population were people between the ages of 18 and 35 because we wanted to study millennials. And, and so 18 to 35 who had to be a Seventh-day Adventist and, and so college campus students, as well as we, we sent the survey out to, to um, um, uh, groups um, within the church, like, um, for example, uh, the, the Spectrum magazine folks were kind enough to send the survey out to some of the people in their population. Um, Deneen Akers, who runs a blog, was kind enough to send out to her constituency. Um, um, Adventist Today um, sent it out to some of their people. And so that's how we began collecting the data. And so, so that, was, um, that was how we collected the data. And so it was, uh, it was very interesting to, uh, you know, to, to just go about the process itself. And so we, we asked some, some critical research questions like, do sexual minority millennials um, often experience various forms of rejecting behavior in society at large, in their faith communities, in their schools, or even in their own homes? We wanted to find out this whole thing of rejection and, and acceptance. And, and we also wanted to find out whether sexual minority youth felt hopeless or sad for extended periods of time, uh, or depressed. You know, did they have higher levels of depression? Did they have higher levels of, of suicide? Did they try to commit suicide in the past? Um, do they experience a stress, uh, experiences of prejudice, or expectations of rejection, or a need to hide or conceal their, their sexuality? Uh, do they internalize homophobia, which means that do they, do, do they uh, not only experience homophobia from other people, but do they internalize that and beat themselves up because they're gay? Um, and, and how do they cope with it? 
how do they cope with it? And then, and then what we want to really explore is how do how should teachers, parents, church administrators, school administrators um, interact with students or treat students in ways that make them feel welcome and accepted, including those people who are uh, identify as LGBT um, um, students. Now, yeah. I, I wanted to, I wanted ahead, to say something before we really get into this, and and that is just a word about our church's policy. As you mentioned earlier, we, we come from a, a conservative Christian uh, faith tradition. Our church's official position is this. Um, it is not a sin to be gay because they recognize that the path to being LGBT is very, very uh, uh, mixed. There are many different ways that a person, it could be genetic, you know, it, it can be um, in other ways, you know, learned, you know, through, you know, it could be through abuse. There are many different possibilities that, that paths that lead to being gay. So the church acknowledges that and says it's not a sin to be gay, but what, is, what, the, what the church is concerned about is the practice of homosexuality. So just, I just wanted to put that in a, in a context. Now, the, the findings are obviously helpful and significant. We can, uh, we can get lost in kind of the review of the data, but we also need to hear the data. Uh, and so I, I want you to give us a summary of the findings of the research, but, but then we, we need to then get into what influence does it have on well, uh, you as a researcher, us as a faith community, how does it guide our decisions? Uh, there will be a few obvious pieces of discussion. So first, just give us an overview of the data and the learnings. I found some of it quite surprising and quite informing. Yes, yes, it was. <clears throat> well, first of all, um, most of our of our um, respondents, uh, about over 75% describe themselves as growing up in a very religious home. Okay, so we're not talking about a secular uh, population, but people who were raised in a very, very religious home. Um, almost 42% said that they still identify as Seventh-day Adventist. And, and this is really, really fascinating skip that many of them who we talked to in our survey said that they want to still be Adventist. They were mm -hmm. raised and they, they kind of had this Adventist worldview where they were raised with, with adventurers and pathfinders and very active in the church. And it's so much a part of them that they want to continue being Adventist, but that they, they often don't find a welcome home in the church. You know, yes. they, they might hear, for example, sermons that demean L the LGBT community. Um, and, and so th they really want to, but, but almost 60% no longer do identify as Adventists. They found a home either in another Christian denomination 
that is more welcoming, or they have found, uh, um, they have become a-religious. Many of them are, you know, are, have become atheists because they've not found a welcome in any Christian denomination. And, and that's the really, really sad thing because they are our children. They're our own. And we need to find ways to help them feel welcome and not just feel welcome, but be welcomed in, and find a place in our church communities where they're not going to experience rejection or diminishment because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. 72% considered themselves spiritual, even more than religious. Most of them still held on to a spirituality. And by that, we meant that they still have a personal relationship with God, which is very important to them. So that's, that, that is very, very um, important part of our, um, of, our, of our study results. Um, yeah, and if you pause just for a moment, David, when I, when I heard that in the research report as I first reviewed it, uh, that surprised me because, you know, my reaction within myself is what surprised me. I said to myself, you know, that number is as high as the general population. If there's any in a undiscovered tendency in my own mind or heart to think that people who are part of a sexual minority group are less spiritually inclined, wow, that's a kind of a, uh, a wake-up call that that's not the case. Well, sorry for the interruption, David, but it's very interesting. Yeah, please feel free to interrupt with questions, but I just read a, a book about, uh, about LGBT people on Christian campuses. Uh, it was a, a survey of many Christian campuses done by Mark Yarhouse and his team. One of the most remarkable findings, Skip, was that was that the LGBT people on Christian campuses are more religious and more spiritual than the other Christians on the college campuses. Can you imagine that? And well, it's interesting. It's, it's an amazing finding. And one of the things that makes sense about that to me, and again, I discussed that with my, uh, my, my group on, on uh, Andrew's campus, um, the LGBT um, Haven Care Group. And what we, what we discussed is that they've had to wrestle with God about this uh -huh. issue from the time they're very, very young. And because of that wrestling, many of them have had to get closer to God because of that wrestling than if they just didn't have to even address this issue. They've had to think about identity, the big questions of life, who they are, how God relates to human experience more than many normal children. Well, boy, I'm sorry. I, that, you know, there's an innate sense of a difficulty in relating to the sexual minority groups that the word I just used reveals. And that's part of all of our learning. So let me try again. A person who's part of this sexual minority group spends time thinking seriously about identity and spiritual issues. Yes. That's right. That's absolutely yeah. right. So, Well, go ahead, David. Yeah, so let's talk for just a minute about their coming out. Um, the majority came out between the ages of 20 and 29. Um, that was about 41%. 
um, about 29% came out between the ages of 16 and 19. One of the things that was so striking to me about this, Skip, is that 20% of our millennials had not yet come out to anyone, mm. you know, and so they're still hidden. They took our survey, but they had never yet come out to their parents because their perception was that their parents were not safe. To me, that is tragic. It's like, oh, that just hurts my heart to know that, that they were so afraid to come out. And, and, and so that when you keep that in, who you, that important part of who you are in, um, there, are, there are negative implications for that to your health, your physical health, as well as your mental health. And that's, that's really sad to me. Well, that, again, David, it is, it, it's a wake-up call for us. Uh, we, have, uh, we have to search our hearts when our family context in a faith community that espouses unconditional love is such that a person in one of these sexual minority groups is afraid to reveal their identity. I mean, we we really that that's a word about grace and love and Christianity to us. And, and yeah, go ahead, David. Yeah, only eleven percent agreed or strongly agreed that they felt comfortable coming out to their parents. Eleven um, percent, or even their even their churches. They you know more more were comfortable coming out to their friends, but. 10, 11% felt comfortable coming out to their parents. About 80% weren't comfortable because they knew that their family would think that they were sinful or disgusting. And three-fourths knew of their parents' prejudice toward LGBT people, making it hard for them to come out. And over half were afraid that their parents would disown them um, or that they would be rejected if they came out. Um, as LGBT to their parents. So those, those perceptions of our millennials in this study were, were so striking, so very, very striking. Um, yes. About two-fifths um, said that their family really listened to them when they came out um, and shared their identity with them. And, and about 70% said their parents were disappointed with them when they did come out. And, and about two thirds told their kids, don't tell anyone that you're gay. And only 25% only communicated that their parents said that they would love them no matter what. And, would, and you re would you repeat that, David? Only 25% of, of, of the millennials reported that their parents told them, I would love you, I do love you, no matter what. Now, those of us in this conversation, participating by listening, my goodness, uh, we need to search our hearts. Um, that, that should cause us to say, okay, in, in my humble opinion, David, that should cause us to say, God, forgive us. I, I agree. And, you know, to me, Skip, one of the greatest blessings 
that our LGBT children give us is they, they force us to take a look at our own hearts, at our own prejudices, at, at the lack of Christ being within us, the lack of love, even for people we don't agree with or people we differ with. And, and, and certainly our own LGBT children shouldn't have to um, be exposed to that. In fact, in fact, almost 9% of our LGBT children were kicked out of their homes when they came out as gay. Mm -hmm. And that's about the same as the general population. So, so it tells me that we as Christians are not better than the general population in terms of that, demo, that, that statistic. It's really sad. Yes. So, um, and so about 80% of our LGBT millennials responded that their parents struggled to accept that they were gay. And, and about two thirds of them thought of the parents um, thought that this was a poor reflection on them as parents. That was at least the perception of, of the millennials who took the study. And yeah. about two, two fifths ridiculed um, their kids by the way they uh, fixed their hair or the way they dressed. And over a third um, used demeaning language toward their children about their uh, orientation or, or gender identity. And, uh, and so we saw high levels of low self-esteem and, and suicidal thoughts and suicide attempts um, and high levels of depression uh, among these kids. And yeah. it really, really is very, very sad. David, it's, it's a lot of information for us and many in our conversation have not had the opportunity to read the research. We're going to spend uh, you know, another eight, 10 minutes looking at some significant implications. But first, where can a person access in an article or a report on the web or somewhere? the findings of the research. Okay. Um, there were two, well, there are a number of different articles that we have generated as a result of this research, but, but one of the easiest places for, for um, people to access um, us, results of the study is on uh, the Spectrum um, website. We posted um, an article and had one published there a, a while back. And also the journal, journal of Christianity and Social Work is another uh, place where um, um, this study can be found. But, but, but I also want to say something really hopeful that's happened that I think would really be a great blessing to so many people is as a result of this study and the, the sexuality committee that has been developed by the North American division, um, a resource has been developed called Guiding Families of LGBT Loved Ones. And it's, it's a resource for parents, for church leaders, for schools, teachers, and so forth. And, and it was developed by the North American division sexuality 
commission. It has some of the findings of our study um, in it. Um, and it's a tremendous resource that is designed to help guide conversations. So it has terminology in it, like we talked about earlier. Um, it has, you know, it, it describes the struggle that LGBT millennials uh, children have with coming out and how we can best help them on the journey. It, it, it talks about even if I disagree um, with, with them, in other words, if I hold on to my Christian convictions about what the Bible says about, about a, a gay and lesbian people and their behavior, um, if I hold on to that conviction, how can I still learn to love people who might see things differently than I do? And so, yeah. and so it's, a, it's a tremendous, tremendous resource that's available primarily through Advent Source. In other words, you, you can even get it free from Advent Source uh, just by paying the postage. So that's, that's probably the best place that you can get the, the most current resource uh, about this. Now, David, uh, I, I want to uh, offer to you a summary sentence of one, th one of the implications and then ask you to spend just a minute responding to it. And that is uh, this tragic reality that young adults in American society do uh, at a rate of about 1.6% um, uh, ever experience a suicide attempt. But among those in a sexual minority group, there's a threefold plus increase in suicidal thoughts. And these young adults in your study, you found they have a very high uh, manifestation, almost a third uh, attempting to take their own life. That's so they, here we have a religious, conservative religious group and about a third of this young adult group. Can, can you share with us a, a word on that? Yes. Um, you know, if it, when you compare 1.9% of, of the general population with a third, you can see that um, our, our Seventh-day Adventist children who are gay are very, very high risk. In fact, the, 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 the one-third were suicide, suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation within the last month, okay, before they took the study. Really? And... And of those third, um, many of them had already made suicide attempts, and 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 that's that's really that's really tragic too. And and about a th about a third of those who had suicide attempts, it was directly because of them being gay. So and so, this is something that we need to take very very seriously if we love our children and really want to find safe spaces for them. Now, uh, I want to focus on that sobering second half of your last sentence, if we love our children and want to find safe places for them. 
we know that there is a significant population in our faith movement of people in uh, one of these sexual minority groups. I'm going to share a short narrative with you that I, I think will elicit a helpful reflection from you as an expert. I had a conversation with a pastor who I'll only refer to as Pastor R, a very conservative person, not so much leaning towards inspirational fundamentalism, but conservative in worldviews, conservative in being, you know, Adventist, uh, and in relating to this issue, a cultural conservative strongly, maybe even a cultural fundamentalist. But anyway, the pastor said, I don't know what to make of this. I can't believe it. I'm just, I'm just shocked. A person came to me who is a trusted leader in our church and said with deep emotion that from their very earliest thoughts and awareness, they were part of one of these sexual minority groups. And Pastor R. related to me, uh, that kind of, I just don't, I don't know how to process that because they said they had never chosen to be in that group. They said they had struggled with it in now through their young adult life they're spiritually strong, they believe in Christ, they believe in scripture, but they said it's the reality of who they are and that overthrows everything I've ever thought. Here's the interesting thing. I've stayed in touch with that Pastor R. That Pastor R has never again in their ministry spoken a negative word or taught negatively regarding a sexual minority group. It transformed the way they relate to those persons. And I kind of sort that out from saying, if we really know, uh, to a place where I say, if we really know the realities and we know the people, it will transform the way we relate I would totally, totally agree with that. Um, it's easy to put them in quotes out there somewhere. You know, that's that's those gay people. But but when you get to know them, um, that transforms you. You get to know them. You journey with them on their struggle. You hear their struggle, their angst. Um, and you get to know the kindness and the love that they that they have. You know, one of the unfortunate things is that our church is a is a worldwide denomination in in the majority of the world. It is not safe for you to even reveal to anyone that you're gay because your your life may be at risk. Yes. And so we need to understand this, the, the larger context as well. And how, how, can we, how can we create safe places in our churches? You know, we have to first educate ourselves, don't we? Yes. You know, we have, to, we have to learn about this. And that's where that guiding families resource could come in. And, and you know, again, getting to know them, listening to their stories and, and their struggles 
you know, is, is a great place to start. And, you know, care groups, you know, the, the Haven Care Group on the Andrews campus is one of several groups now that have begun on our college campuses that, um, that are designed to provide care that are supported by the, uh, the university. In other words, the university has taken a stand that, look, you know, whether we agree or don't agree, these are students that are important to us. We want to create a safe place for them to be, to share, to grow, to, you know, to cry together, you know, all of that. Yes. And, and so and so that's the purpose of these official groups. And and we need to advocate for not just this happening on our college campuses, but also we need to create ways that even on our elementary education ed and academies that that we don't allow bullying, that we edu we begin educating even at that level, as well as in our in our in a broader you know church family denominations, and so we do need to even set up policies um, related to this. Um, some of our uh, our institutions uh, in the North American division have begun setting up policies. For example, what happens with our camperies, you know, our camps, you know, Pathfinder camps and so forth. You know, what do we, you know, how do we address this issue there? They begun establishing some policies to, to give guidance about that. So, so we, we're beginning. I don't think we're anywhere near where we, where we need to be, but we're, we're beginning. I appreciate that, David. Um, you know, a couple of comments from my uh, uh, journey. I am just not feeling positive about the therapy programs, the conversion therapy. Am I off base and not having positive feelings about that? Um, yes. Um, what research has shown about about conversion therapy, which means that if you're gay, if you if you love God enough, uh, if you just believe Him enough, or then you can you can be changed to a straight person, and you know that's called praying the gay away, or you know. And what research has shown is that's that's more damaging than helpful. Now. Yeah. I, I don't want to discount the experiences of anyone who who has had that experience either, you know, but in general, that's not been found to be successful. What research has shown this is that even people who try to to live as a heterosexual person, even knowing that they're gay, it, it just ends up not working and that and that even people who who say, you know, I'm no longer gay, still experience attraction to the same sex or bisexually. And yeah. so it's still there, even though they try to have it not be there. And so it creates all kinds of complexities. And many families have been broken up because a person later on in their life comes to terms with the fact that they really are gay. And then there's a divorce that ensues and children are abandoned and all kinds of problems come as a result of that. 
Mm -hmm. Well, uh, a couple of reflections in that regard. I, I'm a uh, proponent of traditional marriage. Uh, you and your spouse Beverly help couples in traditional marriages. That's part of your service to people. And I just am so thankful for the institution, if you will, the gift, better said, of traditional marriage. At the same time, I recognize that I have known people in my uh, journey through decades that uh, are part of a sexual minority group who have accepted their identity but chosen to deal with it in ways that they have come to peace with and often that path is simply saying I will live a single life and I'm a very disciplined person and end of story I'm moving on to the next thing I don't want to judge them see others Others I've known who have said, I uh, am aware of my identity and I acknowledge it and I am choosing to form a lifelong partnership and their faith in Christ and their service in their community is very strong and I have no need to judge them. I really have an issue though, David, when people uh, come to me and say, aren't you afraid of the influence that somebody might have who is part of a, a uh, sexual minority group on a teenager or a child in the church? And you know, my, my first response is, there are a whole lot more people damaged by persons of a heterosexual orientation in abusing children that I have known or abusing the opposite uh, gender. That is part of the struggle in this human life we live. Um, my goodness, uh, you know, we could have a long discussion about women who have been sexually abused and it isn't just women so to look at everybody who is a part of a sexual minority group with fear of some action or influence uh, it, it it denies the reality of these things it's, it's it's a reason that i wish we would take this research seriously that we would pray and that we would think about it and ask for God's guidance in this thing. Uh, well, David, we need to come to a, a summary. Uh, do you have, uh, in your wisdom, parting words that would be more helpful than what I would offer in my parting uh, spilling of my emotions on the subject? Well, um, first of all, I, I agree with um, with your approach, that it's not my role to judge, but it is my role to love and to help yes. them learn to love God with all their hearts. So many of, of the, the gay people I know love God dearly. And, and we need to acknowledge that, that they can be happy Christians. They can be happy uh -huh. Seventh-day Adventists and, and valuable members of our communities. And 
And again, I don't have to surrender my, my view of Scripture in order to embrace them and to walk on this journey with them and to love them on the journey. And so to me, that's my goal, to, to live Christ, to help them love Christ, to not reject and to leave the judging to God. David, that's so helpful because rather than a reaction emotion that I uh, revealed is sometimes my experience uh, to those who would be judgmental, your appeal is uh, be informed, um, look carefully at the realities, ask God's grace to guide us, be loving, be kind. I wish you hadn't have restated it because you stated it beautifully. Mm -hmm. Thank Thank you so much, uh, David. Uh, we appreciate your joining us in these moments of conversation today. You are so welcome. I'm so glad to be here. And uh, folk listening, please do uh, follow up and examine this research. This is a sensitive, difficult issue, and uh, we value the guidance of persons like Dr. Sajlicek and others who help us through uh, this uh, call for love and grace. Well, this is Skip Bell. Until next time, keep thinking, keep believing.